Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you all for joining us tonight and uh, for those of you that are watching on Facebook Live. And uh, this is kind of awkward, <laughs> teaching to a live audience and also others who are watching online. Uh, I'm getting used to a lot of new things uh, recently. But uh, thank you for coming out tonight and thank you for joining us uh, for this time of Bible study. And uh, what I wanted to do is just begin with a word of prayer and ask God's blessings on our Bible study tonight, and then we'll go into our lesson. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown to us. Thank you for watching over our church family uh, through this time. And uh, we ask tonight, Father, that as we gather together that you would uh, bless our time of study, uh, open our eyes and ears to read and to hear the word of God, and then, Lord, open our hearts uh, to receive it and to apply its truths to our lives. Father, we thank you for your providence, for your care over your creation, and especially over your children. And so, Father, we ask your blessings upon us, upon our church family, and we ask that in all that we do, that you would be honored and glorified. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Tonight, what I wanted to do is uh, start to walk with, uh, with you through the book of Ruth. As I was thinking about just the difficult times that we're in the midst of right now, uh, I thought of this story because it is a story of crisis. It's a story of distress. And one of the questions that keeps coming up as you read through the book of Ruth is, where is God in all of this? And no doubt that is a question that a lot of people have had during this coronavirus, COVID-19 thing that we're going on right now is, where is God in all of this? And what is his purpose? What is he doing? And so I've entitled this message, Where is God in Times of Distress? From Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And forewarning, uh, verses 1 through 5 of the first chapter of Ruth are very depressing. Uh, there's not a whole lot good that goes on in the first five verses of Ruth. Uh, and it brings to light this question. Uh, in, the, in the heights of distress and, and d difficult times, uh, where is God in the midst of all that? And so we read in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, a lot of depressing things happening in those verses. And the first thing that we see in verse number one is disorder. 
complete and utter disorder. And you say, where do we get that from? Well, it's from the very opening line of verse number one, when the author of Ruth says, in the days when the judges ruled. If you've read the book of Judges, then you know why I chose that word to describe the opening part of verse number one. In the days when the judges ruled. Here's how one commentator puts it. He says, the author of Ruth has located this story chronologically in the days when the judges ruled, an era evidently well known to his audience, which implies that there may have been many years that have separated the days of the judges from when this book is being written. And he says he also set his story against a particularly dark background. Israel remembered the judges' period, the time between Joshua's death and the coronation of Saul in 1 Samuel 10, as an era of frightful social and religious chaos. The book of Judges teems with violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. It is um, the, the recurring refrain in the book of Judges is everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Basically, everyone was his own ruler. Everyone was his own judge. There was no order. There was no national king. And so the, the book of Judges is really characterized by chaos and disorder. Another refrain that you find several times in the book of Judges is there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which is right in their own eyes. So there's no organized rule. And because there's no organized rule around a human king, you have all kinds of chaos going on. Religious and moral chaos. Uh, you read the book of Judges and you will not read any more troubling moral and ethical things than what you find in that book. From within Israel. Some of the stories in there are truly tragic and horrific. And these are being done by the Israelites because they were doing whatever they saw fit in their own eyes. And so these people, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, their sons, Malon and Kilion, they're living in the midst of a disordered age. And it's really amazing, fascinating, that in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of that disorder, that there is still a family within Judah that has any sense of faithfulness and loyalty to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was a terrible time. So it was a time of disorder. Uh, we also find in the opening verses of Ruth that it was a time of deprivation. And we see this also in verse number one when it says that there was a famine in the land. So there's a famine in the land. We don't understand famine. None of us in this room, I think, can really understand famine. We, there may be in times when we've gone without something. There may be times when uh, we maybe skipped a meal or two. And even now, during this current COVID-19 crisis that's going on, you may go to the store and there may be some things that are not there that you would normally buy that you would like to have. But we're not living in a famine. A famine was complete and utter deprivation. 
the loss of the basic necessities of life, food, the ability to survive. And there were, no, there were a number of reasons why famine might happen in the ancient world. Uh, famine could happen because of drought. Famine could happen because of uh, insects, a locust plague. Uh, famine could happen because uh, an army comes in and, and burns all the crops down, which you actually see in the book of Judges. So all kinds of things can happen that can bring about a famine. But one of the things that will become clear to us as we read through Ruth is that ultimately God is on the throne, isn't he? And one of the things that we read in the scriptures, both in Deuteronomy and later on in the prophets, is that one of the reasons for famine in Israel was theological. That is, God promised that if they rebelled against him, if they worshipped false gods, that God would bring punishments on them. He would chastise them, and one of those was famine. And so it raises the possibility, it raises the question of, is this famine that's going on in Israel right now, is it a part of God's chastening hand of judgment? The author of Ruth doesn't specifically come right out and tell us, but that possibility is there. And so it's a time of deprivation. Disorder, chaos all around, deprivation, going without the basic necessities of life, such as food, and then add on top of that, complete disruption of their lives. And that disruption is also seen in verses 1 and 2, where because of this chaos and because of the deprivation that's going on with the famine, this family has to make a difficult choice. What do we do? Do we wait for God to end this famine? Do we wait and hope that food will come back again soon, in the next growing season? What do we do? And this family made the hard choice to move away from the promised land, to leave the land of Canaan, the land promised and trusted to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that became theirs through conquest under Joshua and the 12 tribes. They made the difficult decision to go and live in the land of Moab, probably about by foot, probably about a week's journey. On, by walking and traveling with animals, probably about a week's journey. And that was a difficult decision. And the words that are used here in verses 1 and 2 to describe what they were doing in Moab is literally they went there to live as sojourners. They went there to live as foreigners, meaning that they would not enjoy the privileges, the rights, the advantages that they had as Israelites in Bethlehem, their native home tribal territory. They would have to go to a foreign land, and in a foreign land they would be foreigners, strangers, sojourners, and not have all the same rights and privileges that they had at home. At home, Elimelech owned land. He was a landowner, but doesn't do you a whole lot of good in the midst of famine. And so they had to move to Moab, and when they move to Moab, he's not going to be a landowner. He's going to be probably just a laborer in a field that belongs to someone else. And we know that in the land of Israel, when foreigners or sojourners would come in, that the law of Moses prescribed uh, certain 
laws of fair treatment and kindness to be shown to foreigners and strangers. But we don't have that same guarantee for Israelites going to live in Moab. So what were they going into? What difficulties would they face? A different language, a different religion, a different culture, a different people. Who knows? The future was uncertain for them. Clearly a lot of disruption, wasn't it? Changed the whole fabric of their family, their existence. Verse 2 says that this man, his name was Elimelech, which I think in the context of Ruth and, and in the context of the time period of the judges is actually kind of ironic because Elimelech literally means my God is king. But in the midst of the time of the judges, there really wasn't a king in Israel. There was no human king, and spiritually, religiously, the people of Israel had rebelled against God as their king. They were living however they saw fit. And so this man's name as Elimelech, my God is king, is kind of an irony in the midst of this very disordered and chaotic time. His wife's name was Naomi, which probably means something along the lines of pleasant or beautiful. Later on in the story, we see Naomi say, don't call me that anymore, call me Mara, which means bitterness because of all the difficulty that had happened to them. But her name, Naomi, means pleasant, fair, beautiful. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, which we do not know for, sh- for certain the names, what these names mean. Uh, but all of these names uh, we can find uh, used during this time in the ancient world. And so these are real people. These are real names. These are real people. This is not just a made-up story. This, these are, this is a real family who is going through an incredible time of distress and disruption. And it says that they were Ephrathites, which probably refers to their tribal name. Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. And it's interesting, too, that the the tribe of Judah is mentioned here. Because at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 49, Judah is the tribe that is blessed by Jacob to become the ruling tribe in Israel. From Judah would arise a king. And in verse 2, it also says, Elimelech, my God is king. And so the question almost kind of begs itself in verse 2, where is this king that God promised? Elimelech, meaning my my God is king, and the reference to Judah when Jacob blessed Judah and says, out of him will come the scepter, the one who will rule over Israel. And in the midst of all this chaos and disorder in the time of the judges, the question was probably there in the hearts of the faithful, where is this king that God promised? Now, jumping forward about four chapters in Ruth, the answer comes at the end because there's a genealogy at the end of Ruth that ends with a name that we all know very well, and his name is David. And so this kind of uh, narrative calling forth of a question in verse 2, where is this king? It's answered by the end of the story. And a, a king out of the tribe of Judah named David. But here is this family. Their, their lives are completely disrupted. They're... they're in a time of great deprivation. 
and they're going to live in a foreign land where they will be treated as strangers. And on top of that, if that were not enough distress in anyone's life, verses 3 through 5 describe for us death. And verses 3, 4, and 5 describe in quick succession the deaths of all of the men in the family. It is particularly devastating. Verse 3 says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. In the ancient world, to be a widow was to be in a position of vulnerability. And then on top of that, compound it by the fact that they were living in a foreign land. So they have like two, Naomi now has like two statuses of vulnerability. She is a widow and a stranger, a widow and a foreigner in a strange land. But at least she has her sons. But then verse 4 says that those sons married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, the writer of Ruth doesn't really comment on it. He doesn't say, is the death of Malon and Kilion because they married Moabite women outside of the family of Israel? The author doesn't really comment on that. He doesn't, doesn't specify. But it's a possibility that God was, mis- was not pleased with them. But it could also be simply the fact that God is doing something in this family that they at this point cannot yet comprehend, but that will be made clear to them only through the passing of time as they see the hand of God's providence at work. And so we have, in the midst of this Israelite family, disorder and deprivation and disruption and death. Can those words be used to describe the last couple of months? They really can, can't they? A lot of disorder in the sense of Not everyone knows what to do. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of experts giving advice about this is what we should do. We should shut down. No, we should open up. No, we should, you know, use this to, you know, help you, help you with keep the virus away from you. Take this medicine or that medicine and all kinds of this different information somewhat disorderly. There's not a, a unified, clear path which is why a lot of different states have had different reactions to this crisis that we're in. There's some disorder right now because we're living in a time that's relatively unknown. We don't have a lot of experience going through something like this. And so there's disorder. There is some deprivation. Now, I don't think we have yet reached a time of famine like these people, this family did, but Some of us have gone without certain things. There are probably some people out there in some of the cities, some of the larger cities where things are even harder to get, people that are struggling a lot more than we are. 
there's some deprivation out there. And then on top of that, think about even different places in the world where this virus has spread outside the United States of America, where they were already in poverty before this came and now compound it with this. There's some deprivation out there. There is death out there. I read a report just several days ago that during the month of April, the month of April alone, we had the same number of deaths in the United States from the coronavirus that we would normally have from the flu in a whole year. So that puts it a little bit in perspective of it's at least 10 to 12 times more deadly than the flu normally is. There's a lot of death out there. And there are a lot of families that are suffering financially, but even from the loss of a family member. And so the question then arises, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? And in the story of Ruth in particular, we're talking about a family within Israel, a family within the covenant nation of God. What is God doing in their lives? Is he chastening them for their sins? Is he, is he chastening them, disciplining them because they're not doing what they should be doing? Are they, are they apostate? Are they worshiping false gods? As you read forward in Ruth, there's no indication of that. There's no indication that Elimelech or Naomi were worshiping false gods. In fact, they appear to be quite faithful worshipers of Yahweh. So the question then is, where is God in all this? What is he doing in the midst of all of this tragedy, in the midst of the lives of one of his children, one of his families? And here's the thing that we have to wrestle with as Christians, is we don't always know what God is doing. At least right now, from this perspective, we don't know what God is doing. What is God doing uh, through the midst of this coronavirus crisis? What, what's, what are the history books going to say 10 years from now? We're not going to know until 10 years from now of how this transformed and shaped and adjusted lives, nations, states, but even churches. What is God trying to teach the church through this time? Where is God in times of distress? All the things that we looked at in verses 1 through 5 are painful things. But sometimes, and this is the way that God often works in his providence, sometimes you have to take things apart before you can put them back together as something entirely new. The taking apart is hard, isn't it? The taking apart phase of that is hard. It's, it's challenging. It's difficult. But on the other side of it, you see in the end the beautiful creation that God was making with those pieces that he took apart. And I don't know if this is a trivial illustration or not, but as I was thinking about this text, the thought came to my mind of Legos. They'll ever play with Legos or kids or grandkids play with Legos. They're some of the best toys ever invented. And when you get a set of Legos, they come with a set of instructions so that you can build whatever is on the box. You know, you get a, a car or a, 
a hospital, a police station, something, you build that and you follow the instructions. And when you, if you follow those instructions when you're done, it looks like what's on the picture on the box. And you can play with it, you can drive the cars around, and it's fun. But you know what's even more fun than that, at least for me, was taking that all apart and then not following the directions and taking the pieces and building something else that you just came up with on your own. Now, it might not be as professional or good-looking as the, the meticulously described instructions uh, that came in the box, but it was yours, and it was something neat. It was something that you got to play with, and you built it, and you took pride in that. And I was just thinking about that in terms of this. Sometimes when we're going through times of disorder and distress and death and deprivation, God is taking us apart. But in the end, he's going to put something back together again that's even more beautiful. He is the master builder, isn't he? He's the master builder. And so he can make something even more glorious than what existed before. And so I think, and we'll see this as we move forward in the book of Ruth, but the story is teaching us that disorder, deprivation, disruption, and death are our common lot in this fallen world. All kinds of reasons why these things happen. Ultimately, though, none of these distressing circumstances falls outside the guiding providence of God. None of these distressing things falls outside the guiding providence of God. He's doing something in the midst of it. And for children of God, we know that he's doing something good for us in the midst of it. Romans 8.28 says that in all things, all things, even deprivation and death and disorder, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called by God in accordance with his eternal purpose. God is doing something good in their lives. Psalm 24.1 reminds us that everything in the world is the Lord's and ultimately belongs to him. So he is doing something with all of these things. None of these distressing things falls outside the guiding providence of God. And so what is God doing right now? We really don't know. We can't see yet the end result. And I can guarantee you, because we're going to see it in the first chapter of Ruth, I can guarantee you that Naomi had no clue what God was doing at this point in her life. She was heartbroken. She was distressed. She became bitter in her outlook. She had no idea what God was doing at this point in her lives. Not until later on at the end of Ruth chapter 4, after several years, could Ruth then, or could Naomi then say, here's what God was doing. So in the midst of that, as God is working it out, as he's taking apart and as he's rebuilding, we just have to trust. We have to believe. We have to depend upon God and trust his word that he is providentially in control of all things and that he is working for the good of his children. And so I hope that as we walk forward in Ruth, that we'll see this providentially good God. And we'll see that not everything becomes clear to us at the moment, but things do become clearer to us later on. And sometimes even we'll have to wait till eternity to see everything become crystal clear of what God was doing. But in the meantime, we trust. We trust his character. We trust his heart. 
because he is a faithful, good God. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you, praise you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for this story of Ruth that many of us have read countless times. And yet, Lord, as we walk through it again, I pray that you would remind us of your providence, remind us of your guiding hand, and help us to remember that in all times, and especially in times of uncertainty, that you are still in control and that you are weaving your grand purpose together. So, Lord, help us to trust you in the midst of that. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.